Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, Life Lessons from King David, with a message entitled, The Blessings of Repentance. So turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 12 as we join Dr. Newfeld now. I was once a seminary student in greater Los Angeles, and I was required to do a religious survey in a given neighborhood discovering religious attitudes in the area. And I remember interviewing a woman who was, as it so turns out, while well, she taught psychology in one of the L.A. universities. And it turned out that she was more interested in interviewing me. You know, she wanted to know if I thought I was a sinner. Now, I've done an undergraduate degree in psychology, and I in no way think that I know the field well, but I did know enough that I got a sense that I was, figuratively speaking, lying on her counseling couch. Yeah, I said I most surely did believe that I was a sinner, for if I didn't, I wouldn't have sought Christ to be my Savior. Ah, she said, so how do you now view yourself? Well, I try to avoid it by saying, well, the real question for me is not how I now view myself, but how I now view Jesus. But she wasn't biting, and so what could I do? Because she now had me in her crosshairs. I said, well, if you ask me how I feel about myself, I guess I feel humble. And as you can guess, it went on from there. Well, Psalm 32 is a Psalm of David, and it speaks about his own experience with sin. And verse 3 and 4 says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as the heat of summer. That is to say, there is not only a psychological consequence that comes from refusing to acknowledge our own sin and then turn from them in genuine repentance, but, says David, the results are also physical. It does distress my body when I deny my own sin. So I don't know what David went through after he had committed adultery and then conspired to leave the woman's husband exposed on the battlefield so that he would be killed by the enemy. You know, a man of no conscience would probably have sloughed it off and simply gone on. And as I understand it, a psychopath, well, that's a man or a woman who believes that what they've done, even though it is a sin, it's justified and they feel no remorse whatsoever for the lives they have ruined, none whatsoever. You know, I do know that people argue that there is a genetic component to such behavior, and, well, I have no reason to believe it's not so, but I also know that the miracle of regeneration is the change of heart. God takes a heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh. It's just not possible for any genuine believer to sin and not sense the grief of the Holy Spirit and then also to deal with the conscience and the heart that is made for God. But we also know that even genuine believers can grieve the Holy Spirit for a time. And furthermore, we're also aware of the stern warnings that accompany such behavior. So we have to imagine David now adding one more wife to his wives and then carrying on with his duties as king. Is he the same man or has he become the hypocrite? How much like his predecessor Saul is he now becoming? Does he still recognize the young man whose heart once burned after the living God, who was called a man after God's own heart? I think David is in deep distress, and he's feeling it in every way. And that's our background, and we come to 2 Samuel 12. Verse 1 says, And the Lord sent Nathan to David. Well, you might remember that when David was contemplating building a temple to replace the tabernacle, that that it was the prophet Nathan who had a word from God for David. 
That word was what we now call the Davidic covenant, that the Messiah would be a direct descendant of David and that he would rule from David's throne, making David's kingship an eternal kingdom. Yeah, that Nathan is now back. Well, Nathan has had nothing but good news for David, and perhaps David's spirit is roused to see this godly man approaching. But Nathan has come to tell David about an injustice. So we're reading verses 1 to 6. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew with him and with his children. It used to eat his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Now, the point of this story is not that a wife is to be compared to a lamb or to cattle for that matter. The point is, here's a rich man with abundance who has more than enough and who thinks nothing because he's rich and powerful to now go and devastate the house of a man who has little. I think one of the reasons for David's strong reaction to this story is because at one point in time, he had been that poor man. He had nothing or very little. He was hunted by Saul, who was willing to take all that David had. Well, another reason for David's strong reaction is that most of us will have the same reaction. It's a part of the image of God inside of us. We have a sense of oughtness. That is, some things ought to be and others ought never to be. Blatant mistreatment of the poor or the disadvantaged causes us to rise up in indignation, and David does. But of course, David is like so many of us. We're quick to condemn the sins of others, but not in ourselves. This man says David showed no pity. Well, then he should receive no pity. Put him to death. Show him no mercy. Treat him exactly as his sins deserve. I mean, does David know what he's saying at this point in time, or do we? Isn't that how so many of us feel in our own hearts? We, we rage against the man who's committed adultery, and yet some of us continue to flirt with that woman, hoping that something exciting might yet just happen. How is it possible to create such walls of separation in our own hearts when we readily identify the sins of others, but not ourselves? Well, David's self-righteous response that the man who does this deserves to die, well, we come now to verses 7 to 9. Nathan said to David, you're the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You've struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. I want you to notice the four things that God says that he did for David. It was God who made David king. This was not accomplished by David. It was God's design. David receives no credit, but he does need to say thank you. Second, I rescued you from Saul who sought your life, and you should be saying, yep, thank you. Third, I gave you Saul's house and wives. Now, stop here and ask yourself, well, did David sleep with Saul's wives? Well, the answer is, I'm sure he didn't. 
See, I think these words mean that as a whole in the ancient world, all the possessions of any king upon his death, well, they would immediately go to the man who succeeded him. In the ancient world, that meant the wives as well. Now, in David's case, those wives were under his care, but that doesn't mean they became his wives. Rather, he now took authority over everything that belonged to Saul. And so God said, I gave you everything Saul had. And then fourth, I was the one that united Israel and Judah after seven and a half years, and I gave you the United Kingdom. What you needed was an attitude of lifetime amazement at my grace. But what did you do? You lusted after more. You weren't content with my riches. You thought you didn't have enough, and you convinced yourself that the wife of another man is what you deserved. There is something here we all need to consider with a genuine and sober spirit. See, because some of us might say, well, now, you know, if I had gotten all that David had, I I would have been content with that. But here's the problem. When we concentrate on what we don't have, that begins to overtake our souls. There is no riches in the whole world that will satisfy us. You know, John Rockefeller, who was at his time the richest man in the world, He was once asked by a reporter, how much money is enough? And he responded, just a little bit more. Always be just a bit more. See, once we move from gratefulness to a deep sense of discontent that we're missing out on something, see, if we don't have that thing that's just a little bit more, no amount of a little bit more will ever be enough. So it is with a person of power person of fame, the person of riches, the person of academic achievements. So it also is with the adulterer. So it is with everything. And it is this that Nathan pointed out to David. Was it a lack of generosity from God that led you to sin? Or was it a heart that couldn't say thank you and be overwhelmed with grace? You are the man. You're the man who had more than enough, and you killed an innocent man for what he had. You may sense a longing for a deeper, more consistent prayer life, and yet readily admit a shortfall to do so. Well, this month, Back to the Bible Canada wants to support your intentions. And we'd like to send to you as our gift, the booklet, 30 Days of Prayer, A Season of Conversation with God. This free booklet contains 30 prayers personally selected by Dr. John from a prayer book entitled, The Valley of Vision. 30 Days of Prayer is not instruction about prayer, but provides for us an experience of prayer. It offers each of us a month of daily prayers to reflect upon God and offer the cry of our hearts. We believe this booklet will nurture and direct your desire to spend time in prayer with God. To request your free copy today, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. In the end, if we must break God's law and ruin others and deeply damage them to get what we want, you know, we spit in God's face and say, what you've given me has not been enough to satisfy. We accuse God of lacking the wisdom and love to care for his children. An attitude of thankfulness is replaced by an attitude of entitlement, a deep 
inner dissatisfaction regarding what we don't have. This is the root of so much of our sin, and in David's case, this is why he became a murderer. It may surprise us to know that murder is often inspired by a deep sense of lack. If that person were not there, I would have what I want. But now after having identified David as the sinner that he is, and after declaring to him that he's not been able to hide his sins after all, well, Nathan's not yet done. It turns out that no one gets away with anything. We never sin and escape unharmed. So reading now verses 10 to 14, Nathan is still speaking. Now therefore the sword will never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Well, the consequence of David's sin is that his own house would never have peace. Eventually, as we're going to see, David's sin was not hidden from his house, and in years to come, this would engulf him in heartache and chaos. Eventually, the nation would be launched into civil war. David's sin would not be hidden, and all the gains that David had purchased early in his kingship, so wisely uniting the nation, would now be lost. But here, for the first time, we see a note of amazing hope. Rather than responding by saying, oh no, dear Lord, don't take away peace and order from my household, David doesn't even complain. Whatever God now decrees regarding his family is surely just, David will submit. Rather, David's only response is, I have sinned. No excuses, no pleading that there were mitigating factors, no attempt to look better in the eyes of Nathan, and indeed as King David could surely have done away with Nathan, but he doesn't. David, as it were, steps off his throne and immediately, seeing what he's done through the eyes of Nathan, steps from his throne and steps into the role of a penitent. I have sinned. Let me put this as plainly as I know how. There can be no restoration until we acknowledge our sin. We need to stop pointing out that others have also sinned. And without excuse, we need to face our own sin and say, I have sinned. No, no. David doesn't say it was a moment of weakness. I was in a, you know, a bad spiritual place. Nothing like that. I have sinned, and I've not just sinned. I've sinned against the very God who has blessed me so richly. And then with that, Nathan responds, God has taken away your sin. You know, if you have time, I would encourage you to read Psalm 51, for it's the psalm that David wrote in which he openly and without any attempt at all to hide what he's done, openly express his great sin and his need for the mercy of God. You know, I remember some time ago during a sermon telling the story of John Newton, the man who wrote what is perhaps the most famous hymn of all times, Amazing Grace. I told of his pre-conversion life. He was a man who was a captain of a slave trading ship, a man who was part of an industry that destroyed and ruined countless lives. One day, while caught in a violent storm at sea, he cried out to God for mercy. And eventually, this led to a genuine conversion, and yet, it did not immediately occur to him that what he was doing was profoundly evil. Eventually, however, by the grace of God, he did. He quit his profession and eventually became the only slave ship captain in history. 
to appear before the British Parliament and describe the horrors of the slave trade of which he was once a part and beg for it to end. After I was done my sermon that day, a woman approached me and she appeared genuinely agitated. She said, it's not enough. You don't get off so easy just saying sorry to God and then expecting to get off scot-free. Well, now, but that's exactly what the gospel teaches. Jesus took our sins upon himself. He bled and died for the sins of David, for the sins of John Newton, and for the sins of you and I. Forgiveness from God really is the most amazing thing because it's complete and total. But God in love for us does want to shape us through the experience of our sin. The child of the union between David and Bathsheba will die, and the chaos in David's house is going to carry on. But there's another result of David's sin that also must not be overlooked. Look back again at verse 14. You see, the ESV says, Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord. Now, that's one possible translation, but the New American Standard Bible says, however, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall die. That is to say, in this sin of yours, all those who despise the one true God will say, look at David. This is the hypocrisy that attends all those who claim to follow God. And God says, because of that, I will cause the child to die. This will cause my enemies to realize I don't take sin lightly. You know, stop for a moment and consider the implications of that. Years ago, author Randy Elkhorn wrote a book called The Purity Principle. You know, in that book, Elkhorn made a list in which he highlighted what would happen to him if he committed adultery. And one of the items on that list was exactly that. The enemies of the gospel would use his sin as an occasion to say, you see, There's nothing to this gospel thing at all. The people that proclaim that Jesus can give new life aren't really new at all. They continue to act like all of us. The gospel's a fraud. You know, Paul says very much the same thing in Romans 2.24. He says of those Jews who preached law, at the same time he says they broke the law, and then Paul writes, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. See, our testimony matters. It matters a great deal that we resist the temptation to sin. It matters a great deal that when we're blessed, we don't become complacent and feel entitled. It matters that we pursue holiness with all our heart. But it also matters that after we have sinned, that we make no excuses and do not attempt to cover our sins. Psalm 32, verse 5, David wrote, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. See, that's where freedom comes from. The thing that makes David's Psalm 51 so important is that his open confession of the sin with Bathsheba and against Uriah was ultimately a sin against terrifying holiness. And rather, after he was discovered, rather than being secretive, David does the opposite. He writes a psalm about it. It's a psalm that's found in the hymn book of Israel. And every future generation would learn of David's sin and about repentance and about the forgiveness that can come. All of us should learn from this. When you sin, don't ask yourself, what are the consequences that will become known? You see, the devil loves darkness. It's the atmosphere in which he lives. You come out of darkness, step into the light. Acknowledge your sin to the Lord. Don't you hold it back. Don't hide it, lest you live in darkness and deceit and lies. 
I wish I had told the psychologist who interviewed me that day about this very thing. Oh, what freedom there is in forgiveness. We won't have time to study to the end of 2 Samuel 12. We do know that the child does die, but then two amazing things happen. It is to Bathsheba that Solomon is born, which tells us that sin, if it is truly confessed, will not block future blessings. Forgiveness is overwhelmingly absolute before God. God doesn't say, I forgive, but then he continues to hold it over you. No, no. God's forgiveness is complete. What a blessing. And then as the chapter ends, one more amazing grace. That whole sordid affair started when David was at home while his men were at war. He was in luxury while they were on the battlefield. And yet, in spite of that, Israel, under the command of Joab, captures Rabbah of the Ammonites. It's the city that's called Ammon in Jordan today. The borders of Israel are extended, and the enemies of Israel are subdued. Notice, God still blesses. How about you? Are you afraid to repent? Then read 2 Samuel 12 again and become emboldened. Don't keep quiet about your sin. Don't deny your sin. Be open about your sin and learn about God's forgiveness, which comes by grace through the cross of Jesus. Don't be afraid to repent. John, thanks so much for your message today. I did want to ask you, though, why do you think it's so hard for us to come forward with our sin? And and maybe, is there something we can do as the church to make our confessions more accessible? Yeah. Boy, that's such a good uh, question. Let me try the, the second part first. Um, I think that uh, we have, uh, that is, those of us who are in the evangelical community have uh, forgotten something that came from the older churches, and it was the practice of confession of sin at every single worship service. Now, I say this as my own neglect in my own ministry, but I think that would really help us a great deal of recognizing that we need to come always to the Lord for forgiveness. And as we do that and as we practice this corporately, I would hope that we'd set the stage for stop trying to hide our sins or pretending that we're more holy than we are, but rather let's pretend we are what we are. That is, we are sinners in need of grace and there is so much grace that flows from Christ. Thanks, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Life Lessons from King David, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Legacy can traditionally be defined as something that is passed on to entrusted hands, but it can be so much more your faith, your character, your core values, or the life you lead. If you've been blessed by the ministry of Back to the Bible Canada, and you want it to continue and have an eternal impact on future generations, then you may wish to consider making a legacy donation. Advisors with Purpose is an independent Canadian financial ministry that Back to the Bible Canada partners with to help supporters create a plan for their estate according to their faith and values. Our partnership allows Back to the Bible Canada to offer an estate service through Advisors with Purpose for free. If you're interested or would like more information, call Advisors with Purpose today at 1-866-336-3315. And to donate to the ministry today, visit us at backtothebible.ca.
www.cnn.org.ca.